Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Matt Haddad. He is CEO at Trelogene Seeds. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about what's going on in the hemp industry, you know, kind of the broader cannabis industry, specifically in hemp. And then, um, you know, understand what he's doing on the cultivation side, helping work with farmers to make sure that they've got the right products, the right initial source on things. Uh, we're probably going to get a little technical on this, which I, I always love, geeking out a little bit on, on some of these topics. So with that, Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really appreciate the opportunity and looking forward to, to talking with you and your listeners about all things hemp. Yeah, yeah. Exciting stuff. Before we kind of dig into hemp and, and all the details of what you're working on, Give us a little of the story. Like, what's the background? How did you, what were you doing before you got into cannabis? How did you get into cannabis and to hemp? Give us a little context. Yeah, so I had a, a pretty unique upbringing. Um, I grew up around uh, my father and my mother were both entrepreneurs and had their own business. So I was able to to learn a lot, uh, not only from school and from college, but ultimately from, from their leadership in their own businesses that they've created. So uh, at a young age, I really took hold to entrepreneurship and had a series of different businesses growing up in, in grade school and high school even. And ultimately, you know, for me, my, my cannabis career really started 
with selling weed in high school, ironically. Um, so it kind of progressed where I started growing. I started messing around with genetics and sourcing different seeds and doing that for a while until about 2014 when federal legality opened up in Colorado, came out here, and was really on the THC side. I'm exploring different living, living soil organic cultivation methodologies and organic approaches to certain things. Uh, along with extraction and extraction efficiencies and kind of what makes different strains and profiles unique. And, you know, really in like 2015, I uh, started working hardcore with farmers on the hemp side because I really saw what was happening in the CBD space. And it was essentially just 10 years behind THC in, in, in terms of quality and, and caring about different parts of the process to make it more efficient. So I started working with farmers here in Colorado and, and started working with a lot of the genetic stock that was out there and then selecting phenotypes, selecting different varieties for, for vigor and pest resistance, high CBD, low THC, and then ultimately extraction efficiency. That's kind of a topic that's overlooked quite a bit yeah. in our space. And at the end of the day, you can have all the CBD percentages in the world and the best varieties in the world, but if they're not extraction efficient and they hold high lipid content, you just won't get the oil yield that people would want and expect. So Trilogy has been working with farmers all over the world now. We're across about 43 states and 15 countries, 15 countries. So we're now breeding for different microclimates and photo periods all over the world for CBD biomass purposes, minor cannabinoids, multi-purpose varieties that have fiber dominance, as well as high cannabinoid varieties. Yeah. And, and more recently, the smokable hemp market has really been turning up. So terpene-rich varieties that smell and look and taste just like cannabis and high-end ganja, but it actually is compliant hemp. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where we are today. Interesting. I'm kind of curious in, in terms of how you started your kind of backstory. What businesses were your parents in and what, I guess, what did you learn from them that you've applied to the work you're doing today or to the work that you've done in the last couple of years? Yeah. So, you know, my, my father is a, a CPA by trade, mm -hmm. but also a very aggressive entrepreneur. So he was in the health and medical space, and which is where he is today, um, previously mm -hmm. owned security companies and you know, at a series of different companies that he, he worked with. But I kind of learned the nature of how to be aggressive when it's a, a good thing, when you need to kind of have certain goals and, and set the bar pretty high to achieve yeah. them. But also um, him, him being a CPA also taught me how to manage my money and be conservative and understand, you know, Uncle Sam is going to come take a nice chunk of whatever you're making. So uh -huh. that that's kind of where they're at now. And, and I, it gave me a good balance, I guess, growing up to, to really understand both sides of the coin. Yeah. Did you think that your high school cannabis business then would lead to uh, a future in cannabis at the time? <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, relatives and, and family members kind of thought I was a little crazy. I was a little, uh -huh. the wild one. So where, where I always knew that it was a beneficial plant. And yeah. although I did it more for recreational use, mm -hmm. and, you know, back then, I am, you know, obviously glad where it's taken me now and, and it's evolved. So I, I, I didn't expect it, but i um, glad I'm here today. Yeah. And when did the sort of the more agricultural growing side of this come in for you? Because clearly you've developed a, a great knowledge and, and depth in all things cultivation around cannabis. How did that, how did you get interested in that? How did you learn about that? What was that story? Ironically, it started because uh, the, the person I was getting uh, weed from, you know, in high school inflated mm -hmm. their prices. So ultimately I, I started growing in my, in <laughs> my cut closet. Out that middleman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I realized yeah. pretty quick that, you know, you can get seeds relatively easily and and grow yourself if you have the resources to. So it started a few times unsuccessfully in, in closets and, and, and such. Mm -hmm. 
but then, you know, progressed to me getting and, and finding and getting exposed to people like Ed Rosenthal and Jorge Cervantes, who had yeah. some really awesome publications and books about cultivating cannabis. And, and that's where I really started going headfirst into understanding the cultivation side of it and mm-hmm. caring more about the quality. Yeah. And so now in the, in the business, it, it, you were kind of listening a whole bunch of different types of farmers or different types of hemp that you're growing, you know, all with sort of quite different I guess, purposes or outcomes? I mean, you mentioned fiber, you mentioned CBD, you mentioned smokable flour. I mean, give us kind of a breakdown of the types of goals that farmers are looking for, the types of you know, cultivation or the purposes of cultivation, because these are quite different. I mean, if I'm growing hemp for industrial fiber, that's a very different kind of product and strategy and process that I'm going to use versus if I'm looking for smokable flour, right? Those are extremely different markets, at least from a, from my point of view. From a cultivation point of view, from a seed point of view, genetics point of view, what, how are these things different? Why are they different? You know, what do you need to know or how does this break down in terms of categories? Yeah, and that's that's a great point, Bruce. And that's ultimately one of the first questions we usually ask our farmers is what are, what are you growing for? You know, people a lot of times kind of follow the crowds like this year, you know, CBG was a big thing where mm-hmm. everybody says, oh, we got to grow CBG. It's the next new hot thing. But at the end of the day, retail sales are just not supporting the cultivation of those types of miners yet where, you know, CBD really is. It's driving that train. So to kind of segue into the different categories, I mean, CBD biomass is probably the safest floor at at this time as far as, Mm -hmm. you know, what translates to retail sales and, you know, where you could actually monetize on, on your crop and bring it to extracts where, different product formulators will purchase CBD isolate and distillate, you know, from that CBD biomass, you know, that's rich in CBD. Then there's the smokable market, which is evolving more now and and has been for the past couple of years, but it's really starting to come into its own where it's really high terpene rich varieties that smell, look, and taste similar to ganja. Um, So caring about craft, doing indoor cultivation, greenhouse cultivation, where there's a long, slow, dry and cure process. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is essentially important. So this is basically creating creating flour that it, I mean, I guess how similar is it to the THC versions of some of these cultivars? I mean, is it really just these cultivars without the THC in it or how, like, is its own, their, is their own kind of profiles, but, you know, similar to THC involving cultivars? Yeah, they're, they're exactly. They're, they're very similar, but also very different. Cannabis, yeah. sativa L, just in general, is both hemp and ganja. So whether it's high THC or, or high CBD is, is kind of irrelevant. So it's just a matter of uh, crafting those varieties so that they are considered hemp, you know, that, that mm-hmm. 0.3% total THC number. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the smells and aromas could be very similar to, to ganja. Uh, it's just a lot of the breeding work needs to be done to really get the varieties where people want to see them. So, yeah. um, and then what's really coming to an its own now is is multi-purpose or tri-crop varieties and fiber dominant varieties, um, which have traditionally grown, you know, in places like China and Lebanon and different parts of the Middle East and and you know in Switzerland and and such, where these varieties for decortication of different uh, textiles as well as building materials, you know, T-shirts, uh, you name it. There's there's over ten thousand uses, you know, for hemp in in those capacities. Um, mm-hmm. But the one we're more excited about that is starting to make some really great progress is graphene. You know, in 2014. There's a Nobel Prize one on graphene production, and essentially it's a way to make a durable material that's CO2 carbon negative. It's flame resistant, mold resistant, among other things, but it's a material that can be broken down into pretty much anything. And 
you know, most recently, it's found that hemp microfibers are one of the most efficient ways to make graphene, along with canaf, along with pineapple cores, along with bamboo and other fiber-dense uh, plants. Mm. So what's nice is it's a constant exploration of just new ideas and new collaborations we can have um, because we just have so much genetic diversity in our pool. Um, part of my high school and the college days is sourcing different genetics and going to different trade shows was a really big thing. And land race varieties are, were kind of a hot topic of mine, you know, a few years ago, mm-hmm. you know, where, because ultimately, you know, in places like Afghanistan and Lebanon and China that had a lot of these native hemp strains and feral hemp strains, actually 25% of those populations had high CBD. So it's just a matter of finding those seeds, growing Mm. them out, selecting for the traits that you want, and then having your quantitative analysis confirm your qualitative analysis. So now it's kind of just brought into so many different things hemp where we're we're trying to keep a pulse on on all of it. So I'm just kind of curious, like, how does this really work? So once you identify what a farmer wants, you know, the desired outcome, do you go into, you know, a cavern lab and start, you know, mixing seeds or like, how, how do you actually... Are you pulling from libraries? Are you cross-pollinating things? I mean, what, what's the process to actually get the genetics that are going to meet a particular farmer's needs? So we do something called hybridization of different varieties, and that's taking plants that are native to different areas and pretty much doing a, a heavy inbred line and doing selection based on that crossbreeding, that those hybridized varieties. So what we do is, you know, if we sell seeds to a farmer, let's say up in upstate New York, mm-hmm. uh, that's a little bit closer, let's say, to some of like the oceans and lakes and rivers where it's a little bit more humid. They need to have something that's pest and mold and pathogen resistant and, you know, won't easily be influenced by those pathogens. Mm-hmm. Uh, also have a shorter growing cycle since they're in a photo period where, you know, it's yeah. just shorter. You know, it gets to 12 hours a little bit sooner than, say, some somewhere like in Colorado. And so we we just need to work with those farmers to basically get selections and clones of the plants that are performing the best in the field so that we can bring it back to our breeding facility, which is in Illinois, uh, Mm -hmm. mimic that environment that they had there, and then create seeds in that same environment. And then, you know, theoretically over time, as that same farmer purchases seeds from us year after year after year, it's just going to get better for them in terms of a harvest date range, uh, resistance to some of these pests and pathogens, yield, vigor, etc. So it's a ton of organization because we work with 43 different states of farmers, but mm-hmm. our field trial growers are in 11 different states. So it's a lot of organization of different clones and cuttings based on whatever breeding project we're trying to influence. So long story short, it's, it's basically working with the farmer to get a selection of that specific plant so that we can bring it back to our facility and further that genetic line. Got it. So you're basically taking the best of the best from the field, bringing it back into the facility where then you can propagate it and further refine it. And that's through that cycle, you're just going to continue to to increase the the performance of that particular plant. Exactly. I, I look at it almost like creating a, a sports team. Like, you know, I'm a captain uh. of a sports team and I, I need speed, but then I also need power and then I also need this and that. And, and you essentially keep working those varieties and those lines until you get the offspring that you want. Uh. And how long does that cycle take? I mean, what's, what does one iteration look like in that, in that process? So three turns a year, you can essentially bring it to three specific generations of a specific line 
per year if done correctly. So it takes a very long time. And something like new farmers should know coming into the space is, you know, hemp genetics are not even close to corn or tomatoes or cucumbers or soy. There's a ton of breeding work that needs to be done to get it to the level where they're 10th, 11th, 12th generation, so that every single seed you plant is the same height and yields the same, uh, etc. Hemp is not in that place yet, industry-wide, but it is in that direction. Yeah. And, I mean, you're talking about some of these microclimates and things. I mean, what are the there are the outcome factors, which is what am I going to do with the product? And, but then there are the, where am I growing it factors? What are some of the things that you're considering when looking at genetics when it comes to the, the actually growing context that you're operating within? Yeah. So, and, and it really depends on the farmer. The hardest spots really to breed for and grow for are, are places like Florida and some of the island territories because their photo period year round is around that 12, 13 hour marker. So, you know, cannabis and, and hemp are dioecious species that's photosensitive and photoperiodic, which means based on the light cycle, they'll either go into the flower cycle or they'll stay in the vegetative cycle, which will grow in size. But, you know, more notably, autoflowers are becoming more popular in the hemp space because they don't have photosensitivity. They essentially uh, have a three-month turn from, from start to finish, uh, no matter what the light cycle is. But the, the problem is that they're short and stout varieties. And in these places that actually need those varieties, like Florida and, and the islands, you know, that have 12 to 13 hours of sunlight year-round, mm-hmm. they're more uh, easily influenced by mold and pathogens. So these are some of the things we need to breed out in order to stabilize varieties like that for those regions. And, and that's just an example of, of one of the things we would have to look into when, you know, selecting an autoflower variety for a farmer in Florida. Yeah. yeah. And if done well, what are the, I mean, I guess, what are the financial benefits or what's the, the difference or how, how, how do you improve the yield or how do you improve the financials for a farmer by doing this? Like what are, are these like single digit percentage increases? Is, is, are these, you know, double digits? It's this thousands of percents. If you do this right, what, what impact can you have on production? Um, it can be very significant where we've gotten like our CBD varieties, for example, that have been worked the most out of any of our lines and some of the ones that are have been around for a few years you know that we've worked and climatized to places like Colorado and uh, places like Oregon and the Midwest we've seen yield numbers in particular go up exponentially in 2015 if you're getting 2000 pounds an acre you were doing excellent where now you know a lot of our varieties when done correctly and planted the right way and with the re- correct cultivation will yield up to 4000 pounds per acre so in just a couple of years, we've been able to double that yield on certain varieties that we're getting obviously half just a few years ago. And the one kind of caveat that, that makes it a little bit difficult is THCA in particular is directly linked to the immune system response in the plant. So mm-hmm. anytime it gets stresses and deficiencies and pathogens and pests, that THCA number will amplify more in your end flower result. So there really is a correlation between not just genetics, but genetics, environment, and cultivation to really get those numbers consistent uh, year after year. So, so those are one of the things that we've been looking into with our field trials to obtain more data so that we understand that more because you might have a farmer who grows one variety in New York and then another in Colorado that might have varying cannabinoid results. 
simply because of their environment and cultivation practices. So even with the same beginning genetics, the result's going to be different just because of the environmental stress that's put on it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something earlier. I hadn't, it was an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it before, which is the sort of the extractability of some of these things. You know, just because you grow something that has, you know, a percentage of, you know, a CBD in it, you know, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be able to extract all that. What are the, what are the factors or, or why is the extractability or what drives extractability and why is that an issue or consideration for farmers in terms of genetics? Yeah. So, you know, extraction efficiencies are extremely important. So, One is obviously having a good processor that's going to capture everything that's in there, 99 plus percent that's in there. But from a breeding perspective, the one thing we can control is lipid and fat and wax content. So we've seen through different cultivation practices and through different selection practices that we can actually amplify those numbers by say up to 5%, which is actually extremely significant when you're concentrating and extracting, you know, different material at scale. You know, before something comes into our breeding program, we actually run individual plant extractions using the same tech consistently to essentially see what has the lowest lipid content. When you're going through the extraction phase, the the first part is extraction and second part is winterization, which is essentially removing all the fats and lipids and waxes. And during that stage is when you experience the biggest loss, Mm. uh, which is anywhere between 15 and 35%. So 5%, up up to 5% can make a big difference at, at scale if our varieties are that much more efficient. Yeah. And where do you see this kind of part of the industry going? I mean, it it sounds like we're still somewhat early in terms of really developing, you know, sophisticated process and and a real, you were mentioning kind of the generations, you know, this this multi-generation cultivars, you know, genetics that that have been highly kind of selected and, and, and are highly targeted. I guess, where are we? Where is this going? You know, what, what is the future of this part of the industry? You know, and that's a, a really interesting question because if it were 20 years ago, it would definitely be one thing. But now technology and sequencing data and technologies like CRISPR and zinc fingers that allow you to do gene splicing and gene editing, I think are going to propel genetics a ton moving forward. So in in all reality, the varieties that are being grown today, I think in three years or four years won't even be on the market. So there are new breeding technologies, I think, that are excelling people to make selections and, and do work that would traditionally take them 10 years in 10 months. So in all reality, I see part of the industry embracing these technologies and then others fighting it, kind of similar to the you know, agricultural movement of, of organic approaches mm-hmm. and, and yeah. you know, GMO approaches. And is that, are we talking basically the same thing? Is that the GMOs are basically these things that have been, you know, people have gone in and actually altered the, the genetics directly versus through natural, quote unquote, natural selection processes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. As, essentially, that's what it is. But, you know, ironically enough, with some of these editing technologies that have came out more recently, there are ways to keep the integrity of the organism without it being classified as a GMO, while mm-hmm. still removing aspects of that organism. Interesting. So are we going to have non-GMO weed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we will. We'll have yeah. non-GMO THC-free hemp, for example. There, there uh-huh. will be varieties out in the next two years that will be guaranteed to be 0% THC and be able to be smoked, not be classified as a GMO. And I think for the smokable market in particular, as well as the biomass market, yeah. but especially the smokable market, I think it'll really take off where you know groups like Philip Morris and 
uh, larger tobacco companies will start to get into it knowing there's not a risk of that 0.3% total THC going hot. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, tell us a little bit, because I know that the hemp market has been a little crazy the last 18 months or so. What has driven kind of hemp at this point? What have you seen as being kind of the challenges for hemp growers? Where do you see hemp playing out from a market? Yeah, it's troubling times, you know, in a lot of sense, especially with COVID and everything going on, but it's actually very good for the industry what's happening right now. And it's basically a consolidation of different companies kind of merging together and forming together. Uh, They're getting bankrupt and getting out of the industry and ultimately just flooding out a lot of the bad apples. I, I think there's a ton of brokers and other cannabis industry professionals that have attracted them towards hemp. So they've kind of always chased the the dollar. There's a, there's a lot of finance-driven professionals in the space where now it's real the boat is settling and uh, you know, you can't pull the same things that you could before. You know, uh, now farmers have to go through DEA registered facilities to get their potency tests. They need to have supply chain tracking every step of the way in order to compliantly sell their material. So, you know, with compliance, there there are some struggles and there's obviously things I don't agree with, with how the government regulates the plant. But at the end of the day, it's good for the industry and it's good for those who are real, who are trying to do good work and not just fabricate results to, to earn a quick buck. Yeah. Yeah. And do you see, I mean, how quickly do you think some of this consolidation is going to happen? I mean, is this the next couple of months, next couple of quarters? Is it going to take a year or two? I think it's going to take another year. So essentially, I think COVID actually has been speeding us up uh, yeah. in, in this process, which is which has kind of been nice. But, you know, this year and I think by the end of 2021, it'll be pretty consolidated. And obviously, when that happens, too, there's some of these larger nurseries and larger agricultural groups that are actually going to be getting in the space. A lot of them have been sitting on the sidelines the past couple of years uh, just for waiting for all the excuse my language, but fuckery, um, (laughs) as people call it, um, Uh you know, going on in the space. It's just you can't run a professional business, especially when you have big corporate ties and and in federal insurance policies and such, if if there's that much risk where uh, the risk is decreasing and the legitimacy is increasing. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. I'm curious on that. I mean, I've Originally, I was an architect before I got into software and then got into, you know, doing working with businesses on strategy and cannabis. And I'm curious on the industrial hemp side of things. I mean, uh, you know, you can use it from everything from building materials to, you know, yeah, clothing, all these kind of things. I mean, do you see in terms of the big sections of the hemp market, smokable flour is a great idea and I could certainly see a market for it, but it seems a minuscule <laughs> in comparison to some of the other applications of hemp. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think anything plastic can do, hemp can do better. The problem, you know, with some of the just American corporations is there's just deep ties and there's political ties and and there's big barriers that we have to get through to actually make it, you know, work. But I think, you know, now and and through the past couple of years, you know, the internet and the organic movement and the consciousness movements have really been putting things to light for people to understand like, hey, what you're eating in that bowl might not be as healthy for you as you think, or that shampoo that you're using every day might be actually putting toxins into your body that you don't want. So little things, even like wearing hemp clothing makes such a dramatic difference. Um, There was a recent study that like bras and t-shirts that have polyester and cotton are actually topically giving people cancer as well as other uh, diseases because the material itself is topically going through, you know, through your skin where hemp clothing doesn't need toxins to actually uh, decorticate and produce and, you know, doesn't have that type of effect on, on your skin. So I think just as people start to wake up to, you know, what they're eating, the medicines that they're taking, 
the clothing that they're wearing, the chemicals they're using to clean their houses and their bodies. Hemp can literally solve all of those issues with a negative carbon footprint, as well as, you know, good for you. So people talk about how much carbon we actually have in the air. And big agriculture is by far the biggest culprit, uh, you know, to speeding up climate change and ultimately heating up our world quicker than, than it should be, where hemp can be at that saving grace to do everything paper can do, everything plastic can do. So you're 100% right that, you know, smokable hemp and even CBD oil is minuscule in comparison mm-hmm. to what the benefits of this plant can actually do. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Um, I'm curious if I gave you a magic wand, you know, to change sort of one thing around the hemp industry, hemp market, if you could change anything, what would it be and why? Oof, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, <laughs> because there's so many things you'd want to change. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in self-regulation. I, I think yeah. there's certain government agencies that really put a, a stranghold on the industry. So, you know, probably the biggest one is the 0.3% total THC. That that's yeah. not a science-driven number. It's literally a number pulled out of a hat, and and it yeah. doesn't have any scientific basis, which makes it really hard as a breeder, for example to guarantee compliance on our varieties when there are so many factors and the 0.3% limitation is is just so small, you know, which is why other countries like Australia and Thailand uh, have implemented 1% THC laws because that's that's more manageable and there's a lot more yeah. we can work with. And does that, I mean, from a breeding kind of point of view, one one percent does that just give you more tolerance, or is that is there something that's like plants will naturally? It's like it's much easier to keep that kind of threshold from a plant point of view than the point three percent. If it was one percent THC, Trilogene would be able to guarantee in writing yeah. uh, to all of our farmers that it would never go over that one percent. Yeah. Because of the 0.3 threshold, you know, and breeding for high CBD varieties in particular, it's just yeah. impossible to guarantee, and uh, which is just a, a further risk for the farmer. And you know, as we all know, the farmers, uh, you know, in society in general, really always get the short end of the stick. They they pay retail for stuff and they sell everything for wholesale, and yeah. you know, that's just a cycle that needs to change. Yeah, yeah, Matt, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Trilogene, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, so you can actually reach out to us right on our website, TrilogeneSeeds.com. We also have LinkedIn pages and Instagram pages where you are, are welcome to, to reach out. And uh, yeah, we, we'd love to hear from any of you guys. So um, please reach out. Awesome. I'll make sure that the links and the handles and everything are in the show notes so people can get that information. Pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Bruce, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and uh, hope to talk to you guys again soon. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.